God is good. All the time. There it comes. If I recall my history properly, about 99% of every great worship service held in the history of the world was held without a TV. I think we'll be okay either way. Speaking of television, when I was a kid, it was always a disappointment to discover that one of my favorite television shows had been canceled. There were only four channels back then. There were only four. One was PBS, which meant there were only three. <laughs> and when you had something you enjoyed watching, I mean, you looked forward to it because it's not like we had socialized when we were kids. You know, my grandkids, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, I mean, they have socialized. I didn't have until I was an adult. They always have somewhere to go. We never had anywhere to go because there was never anyone wanted us around. So what we really did is we sat and watched TV. And on certain nights, you got really excited because your favorite shows were on. And then I remembered hearing that your favorite show was canceled. It could be for innumerable reasons, from low viewership to... You remember, those of you that are old, you remember when they took all the country shows off and they put all the city shows on? You know, Green Acres, Petticoat Junction, Andy Griffith Show, gone. Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart Show, in. I just remember all of those kind of things. A lot of reasons you cancel a show. But what I always knew was that at the end of the day, something I enjoyed was gone. It was taken from me. It was canceled. I would have never imagined back in those days that so many of these shows would reboot 50 years later and I could watch all of them on cable, but I digress. I remember bad winter Sundays early in my ministry when I would agonize over whether to cancel Sunday worship. Back in those days, if you had canceled one worship service in small churches, you probably did not make that offering up for the whole year. If you canceled two, you were shot. And I remember just sitting there, all the decision on me, trying to decide whether to cancel. I'll never forget the Sunday in 2020 when we canceled live church at Christ Church indefinitely because of a pandemic that we did not yet understand. That remains one of the truly horrible days of my ministry. In recent years, Canceled has taken on an additional meeting. It's, it's to have a voice or a viewpoint removed from the public sphere. These days, if someone pushes hard enough against prevailing culture, they may well find themselves canceled or left without a platform. It leaves me to wonder if being canceled is ever a positive thing these days. Many in our culture today view Christianity as a set of prescribed do's and don'ts, mainly don'ts. Adding to this perception is the fact that Christianity has historically tended to define itself by what it's against rather than what it is for. 
And I must confess that as a young person raised in the Baptist tradition, I thought myself a good Christian based more upon what I didn't do than what I did. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't cuss. didn't cheat. All of these things. What made me think I was a Christian? Because I don't do these things. Holiness and Pentecostal traditions went even further. As those in their sphere were often not allowed to play cards, drink socially, dance, swim in public pools or beaches, or go to the movies. I remember some of the more extreme traditions. Men could not wear short sleeves for fear their elbows would entice riots, I suppose. (laughs) Women were not only expected to wear incredibly modest dresses, but to refrain from jewelry of any kind and makeup. And then you had Mennonite and Amish traditions, pushed it even further. And they rejected things ranging from mechanization to television to technology according to where you fell on that spectrum. I'm guessing if someone were to ask a person in in such a tradition, how are you different than unbelievers? They may well point out these kind of distinguishing factors. I'm different because I don't do this or that. And frankly, I'm going to be real honest with you. I have no problem with faith traditions playing it the way they feel it. I'm really serious on that. I have no problem at all with faith traditions playing it the way they feel it. I mean, if you want to go Amish, throw away your phone, sell your truck, and buy a horse and buggy, knock yourself out, and I'm not telling you it's a bad idea. More power to them. Your life may very well be better. But I am concerned that as a result of such legalistic thinking at times, that Christianity in our culture has been more associated with the don'ts than the do's, which arcs from relationship toward religion and for many translates as bad news, not good news. Our challenge to this adversarial culture is to reestablish a Christian identity on the basis of who we are. We need to reset. Who are we? Who are we? I would suggest we are sinners saved by grace. We are the people who have been forgiven. We are the people who have been forgiven. Paul's letter to the Colossians addressed a church who had apparently bought into an idea that you could be made right with God through special knowledge that revealed a detailed set of man-made revelations, regulations, and rules. Those who had the recipe for the secret sauce felt pretty good about themselves. You know, kind of like people who wake up at five o'clock every morning to exercise and read the Bible. Those people feel great about themselves, as well they should. Paul isn't saying there's anything wrong with knowledge and discipline, but he's calling out the notion that knowing the right stuff and following the rules can make you right with God. 
what makes us get right with God is not some baptized sense of personal self-discipline. It's not it at all. Now, keep in mind, people in the mid-first century did not have a canonized New Testament. There were books and letters in, in abundance. We have some of them today, but none of them yet carried the authority of Scripture. They were building the gospel ship as they were sailing it. Paul's prison epistles practically demonstrate how that in a culture where teaching about Jesus was everywhere and all over, he began to move the church towards some sense of standardization. We would call it some sense of orthodoxy or correct teaching about Jesus. Paul is huge in this. We don't get the gospel without Jesus. We don't get Christianity as we know it without Paul. Paul is huge in getting some sensibilities about what is correct and incorrect teaching about Jesus. I believe that we stand in need of correct teaching about Jesus today every bit as much as the church at Colossae did so long ago. Paul's thesis in Colossians is really simple and clear. Jesus is all you need. Say that with me. Jesus is all you need. You don't need anything else. Can you do other stuff? Sure, and it's fine. But don't think you need that stuff. Jesus is all you need. So Paul has been stacking up claims about Jesus all through Colossians. So we're going to quickly review 10 claims, and then we're going to keep moving on. So let's do that. Number one, Jesus is God. That is huge. Two, Jesus was the catalyst of creation. He didn't just show up for a nativity appearance, he goes back to the beginning. Number three, Jesus is supreme over creation. The Bible says that his name is the name above all names. I think we do ourselves a massive disservice when we forget that there is power in the name of Jesus. Number four, Jesus is the head, and the church is his body. So if Jesus isn't the head, whatever it is you have, it's not a church. Jesus is the head. The church belongs to Christ. Number five, Jesus reconciles us with God. He makes us right with God. How many of you are math people? How many of you are not math people? We're about 50-50, right? That's why most people make C's, right? Because you got A students and F students. There's very few actual C students. Reconcile, to be made right, to reconcile to the penny. Jesus reconciles us with God. We don't have a chance at reconciliation. Jesus does that work. Number six, Jesus makes us holy and blameless before God. When Jesus, when God looks at us, he doesn't see the lost soul we were. He sees our rescuer. He sees Jesus. We used to sing a song, and at the end of it, it says, And when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. That's good theology right there. That, that, that'll make you like a shout Methodist or something if you get a hold of it. Number seven, Jesus invites us to walk 
with him. Abide with him. Walk with him. Number eight, Jesus roots us. He roots us, grows us deep, deep granite strong. Nine, Jesus unlocks all God has for us. Every good thing that God has for you, Jesus is the key that unlocks that. And number 10, Jesus empowers us. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. I've got something for you. Jesus will never ask us to do something he's not empowered us to do. And that's a big problem with modern theology today. You see, a lot of people look at modern theology and they say, well, if if human beings can't do stuff by their own best efforts, then it must be impossible. But what I'm saying is if God tells us to do something or not do something, we are empowered to accomplish it or refrain from it through Jesus. God will never ask you to do what God has not empowered you to do. The power comes in the name of Jesus. Now we get to number 11. We're cutting new ground now. Verse 13. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. So here's the deal. Sin kills everything it touches. Anything bad in your life right now, anything going on in your life right now that is negative and bad and trying to kill you, the root of it is sin. It's the root of it. Sin kills us. It kills everything it touches. And quite tragically, Paul reminds us that we are products of a sinful nature. We often mistakenly think of sin as an add-on. We think of sin as an add-on. The the common narrative is that we are born good. I mean, babies are cute, right? And then later, we choose to do bad things, and after a while, it sort of piles up on us. This is simply not a biblical worldview. It really isn't. It's, It's quite a romantic idea from the age of romanticism and literature, but it's really not a biblical worldview at all. Theologically, the Bible tells us we are born into sin. Much like a fish is born into water. Before the fall, sin was unnatural to humanity in every way. Sin was feral. It stood outside God's order. After the fall, sin became a part of human nature. So sin is not something we do. It is a thing into which we are born when I was a kid, uh, in, in, in Sunday school, our teacher asked us a question, and, and I want to stop there, because when I think back to my childhood, so many of the formative moments for me happened because lay people like you volunteered. I'm sure we were most difficult. You know, I I have no doubt we were most difficult. But lay people like you poured into us. And I remember a teacher who asked us once, what do you have to do to go to hell? 
I was raised Baptist. Hell got a lot of work. <laughs> and we thought about it. And, and the common answer from our culture would be something really, really bad. And I remember the teacher said, no, no, no. All you have to do to go to hell is nothing. Because when you enter the world, that's where we're already headed. Because we're born and descent. That simple question and response begin to build a biblical worldview in me. And it became something very substantive. This teacher didn't have a seminary education. I, I assure you, they didn't have a college education. They may not have had a high school education, but they knew enough about the Bible to pour into me, and they taught me something that really impacted my life. And I'm really grateful for that. You see, everyone is born on the proverbial highway to hell unless something changes. That's the whole premise of why the good news is, is good news. Because we are all headed the wrong direction out of the gate unless something changes. What is the something? Jesus is the something. Say that with me. Jesus is the something. So we're all headed to hell unless something changes. Jesus is the something. We don't have to do anything but act naturally to sin. But we do have to do something to eradicate sin. We have to cut it out. We have to cut it out. In verse 11, Paul uses this as a circumcision of the heart. When the dead is cut out of us, removed from us, only life remains. If you take the virus out of an operating system, all that remains is the operating system. Paul's in it. Death, sin has to be cut out of us. The opportunity to have our sin forgiven and to be restored into communion with God does not happen because you have special knowledge. It doesn't happen because you can keep the rules and regulations better than the next person. And it doesn't happen because of what you don't do. It happens through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in Christ alone. He is not only enough, he's all you need. Christ is all sufficient. Forgiveness moves us from death to life. That's why the gospel was good news. If you think that you're just fine, if your theology begins with some kind of, you know, uh, 1960s, early 1970s, I'm okay, you're okay, then all Christianity becomes is sort of a cramp in your style. But if you understand a biblical worldview that we are born into sin, and unless something changes, it's going to turn out really bad, the gospel is incredibly good news. We move from death to life. Paul's also utilizing the, the metaphor of water baptism. Water baptism is interesting. A person in immersion, a person stands as they are. It's sort of like a play. They stand as they are. They confess their sins. They repent of their sins, and they're buried. 
And the idea is the sin dies in the water and you pull them up to new life. It's death and resurrection. All right in front of you and played out in a powerful way. You know, in the Old Testament, only Gentile converts to Judaism called proselytes were baptized. It's part of the reason that John the Baptist was such a splash, pun intended, was because he was baptizing Jews and Jews didn't think they needed to be baptized. The assumption was that the children of Abraham had no need for a baptismal ritual. It was how you got into the community from the side, contained in the construct that a descendant of, Ad- of Abraham would even consider being baptized, is the notion that Jew or Gentile, humanity is not as we were intended to be. We are flawed. Somewhere along the line, something bad happened to us. There's probably not a person here who the person you were created to be hasn't some way been distorted by something bad that happened to us. Sin is what happened to us. What is the Adam and Eve and the snake story? It explains the bad that happened to us. And what happened is sin. God said, don't. We did, and the whole thing blew to crap. It's really a pretty simple story in the fall. God said, don't do that. We did. Sin literally means to miss the mark. Romans 3.23 gives us the unsettling news that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all straight-up sinners. And I'm not saying some people aren't somewhat better than other people. I know people who are just absolutely despicable. And I know other people who are really, really good by nature. But the problem is that all of our natures are fallen. And being good isn't good enough. Something has to change. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think one of the best things to do if we want to get our heads right theologically would be at church to start church like they do a 12-step meeting. Hi, my name is Shane and I'm a sinner and you all get to go, hi Shane, and then it's your turn. That would be a really good, honest starting place. Scripture tells us humanity was originally created to be in union with God, to be in union with God. But sin broke the connection, and death, not life, became our present and our future. By virtue of sin, humanity was denied access to the abundant life and fellowship with God into which and for which we were originally created. Post-fall, We were dead men walking, who suddenly stood in need of resurrection. You see, you can't be both alive and dead. We can't be fully alive until the sin in us is fully eradicated. It's a circumcision of the heart. Sin must be extracted from us. 
Claim number 12, Jesus cancels our record of sin. I'm about to share some good news. Some of you are probably going to start shouting a little later. Or not. 14, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Crosses. A person was condemned by the Romans, hung on a cross, and what was nailed above them? The charges against them. Remember the charge against Jesus? King of the Jews. Sedition. It says Jesus cancels the record of our sin. If somebody gets into trouble with the law, that trouble lingers with them, even after it has been legally resolved. For example, if someone is an ex-convent, convict, we know that they have, at some point in their life, been convicted of a crime of some sort, have served their sentence, but by the very terminology that we use when we say ex-convict, we are allowing that portion of their life to become defining. Are you with me there? Lean in. We are allowing that portion of their life to become defining. The term ex-convict tells us nothing about that person's present or their future. It is only a testimony to their past. It doesn't tell us who they are. It tells us who they were. But by virtue of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the price for our sin has been paid. My people come from a small community in southern Illinois called Sunfield. Most, a lot of them are still there. There's not a ton of bishops there because our particular strain seemed to produce a lot more girls than boys. And what few boys they produced, like me, moved away. But my people are still there. It's a suburb of the DuCoin Metroplex. <laughs> the community formed around the long-abandoned Bailey Brothers Mine. It was a small underground coal operation that provided a livelihood for many of my relatives who worked in unimaginable underground condition and made almost nothing for their efforts. Remember those pictures you used to see of people in the 20s who had coal all over their faces? Absolutely filthy. Those were our people. Those were my people. Many of these folks died of black lung as young men. And if you drive through Sunfield today, Sunfield still consists of far too much cancer and far too many widows. Even still. And you say, why did people stay? Why did they do that? Debt. Debt. There was a company store. And the company store was kind. I mean, before you even made a cent, they extended credit to you. They extended credit to the mining families on the things they couldn't yet produce themselves or maybe could never produce. What might be seen as benevolent on paper actually became a trap of perpetually owing more than the miners could ever hope to pay. And debt made slaves of them. 
Only someone walking into that store and paying off their debt in full could give them an opportunity for a different future if they chose to take it. In the first century, debt was easy to get into and tough to escape. There were debtors' prisons, and hapless debtors didn't get out until somebody paid up. It was not time that held these people in prison. It was a very specific amount of money. You weren't there for five years. You were there for $50,000. Do you see the difference? Debt held them captive, not time. When the debt was eventually paid, the prisoner was free. You see, then, like now, people formally signed on to debt. As a matter of enforceable public record, nobody makes you go into debt. But unlike the bankruptcy process today, there was certainly no recourse back then for people who couldn't pay. Some who voluntarily became slaves were simply borrowers with no means to settle up other than literally selling their freedom. Debt was literally what stood in the way of a slave and his or her freedom. Debt. Sin, which separates us from God, is consistently referred to in the Bible as a debt. A debt. It is something that must be reconciled before we can be freed from the prison of sin and made right with God. you got to deal with the debt before you can escape. Judaism thought of sin as spiritual indebtedness. It held you and kept you in a bad space. This debt confines us as slaves to sin. But what Paul is declaring here is the work of Jesus, the work of Jesus cancels the debt of sin. He paid our debt in full. He walked in to the company store and paid off the debts of the miners in full. They now have an opportunity for a different life, if they should choose it. They have an opportunity for a different destiny, if they choose it. But Jesus paid the debt that they could never pay. Sin no longer gets a voice. It no longer has a platform. There is no recollection or record in the mind of God concerning canceled sin. So the debt has been paid, and the sin has been canceled. The opportunity is there. Number 13, Jesus vindicates us. You see how we're building here? Jesus vindicates us. Verse 15, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Not only is the debt of our sin paid in full, canceled, and cleared from the books, but the satanic predatory lenders are disarmed and humiliated. Satan and those on his 
payroll are defeated and ultimately humiliated. When a Roman general won a great victory, they came back to Rome and they marched through the city in what was called a Roman triumph. It was sort of like a parade on steroids. Uh, Romans lined the street and the conquering hero, usually dressed as a god of some fashion, led the procession and the spoils of war followed them and then all the defeated kings would be bring up the rear and they would be humbled, humiliated, chained. And people would cheer because their defeat signified the glory of the general. It was an awesome display of power as once great and formidable enemies were now publicly humiliated. The greater the defeated enemy, the greater the glory of the victor. This is exactly what Jesus did to Satan on resurrection morning. He defeated Satan, but he also humiliated him. In Christ, we are forgiven. The power of sin is broken. Past sin is canceled And Satan is paraded in humiliation. As we piece these claims together, and we're going to add even more, there's a storyboard emerging from Colossians, and I just want to make you aware of it. Let's take a look at the storyboard. First of all, we are all sinners. Would all the sinners please raise their hand who are present? There we go. Good. We're getting this. Those of you who are unsure, stay afterwards. (laughs) We got extra work for you. Number two, sin leads to eternal death. Sin kills you, all right? Number three, Jesus paid the price for sin. He paid the debt that we could never pay. Number four, forgiveness is possible through repentance. It doesn't come automatically, that's universalism. But it is possible through repentance. Just because somebody pays the debt of the coal miner doesn't mean they automatically are gonna live a new life. It means they have the opportunity, if they so wish. But until the debt is paid, they have no such opportunity. We have forgiveness as a possibility. Number five, Jesus has canceled all record of forgiven sin. Not only has the debt been paid, but the ledger has been cleared. All record of our former sin has been canceled. Number six, Satan is defeated And number seven, Satan is humiliated. Not only is he defeated, he is humiliated. Every time I think of my Aunt Sue, I remember the time I spent the night at her house when I was a little boy, lacking any sense of moderation. At her house, I overdosed on pizza and Pepsi. In the aftermath, I threw up all over a brand new white carpeting. Despite that unfortunate association in my mind, I have to remember that I am no longer that little boy. I may, it it may have been what I did, may even be who I once was, but it's not what I'm doing. And it's not who I now am. You see, the reality is that foolish little boy no longer exists. 
He's been replaced by a man. Not a perfect man, but certainly a man who's committed to becoming a man of God. I don't know who you used to be. I don't know what you've done in the past. But I do know that if you have asked forgiveness of your sin and invited Christ into your life, you're a new creation. That foolish person of yesterday no longer exists. God has no memory of that person at all. And you do well to forget that person as well. Stand, Paul. All ye who are forgiven, stand tall. You are not an ex-sinner. Sentenced to forever carry the stigma of your foolish or sordid past. Your sin has been canceled by Christ and Christ alone. So to answer my opening question, yes, getting canceled can be the most wonderful thing ever.